0: Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of Radio 2 SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week, we take a look at the numbers that make up the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Now, it may be 2021, but the 2020 Olympics are only just about to get underway. Tokyo has been what could generously be described as a saga, with spectators now banned from attending due to COVID-19 outbreaks, and calls for the event to be either postponed again or cancelled entirely. Are the Olympics fit for purpose anymore? The Games carry cultural legitimacy, but also an exorbitant price tag. Back home, Brisbane has found itself as the preferred bidder to host the 2032 Games, with the official vote due on July 21. But is it going to be worth it? Many Sydney siders carry fond memories of Sydney 2000, but at the same time, they also would have seen the images of rotting and rusted stadiums from Athens 2004 or Rio 2016. To discuss all this, I was joined earlier by David Rowe, Emeritus Professor of Cultural Research at Western Sydney University's Institute for Culture and Society, and Tim Harcourt, Industry Professor and Chief Economist at the Institute for Public Policy and Governance at the University of Technology, Sydney. We're 10 days out from the start of Tokyo 2020. Spectators have been banned. Opinion polling in Japan says that around 60 to 80% of the populace want the games to be canceled or postponed. A professor of theoretical economics at Kansai University has calculated that holding Tokyo 2020 without spectators would lead to a $31.3 billion loss in Australian dollars. Tim, I guess I'll start with a broad question. Why did the Olympics cost so much money?
1: This Olympics will cost a lot more, I guess, uh, because normally, as well as the, the infrastructure uh, and so on, they're going to have to spend about $3 billion US dollars in sort of anti-COVID measures. And they've lost a billion worth of tickets, as you said in your preamble. And then, of course, they're not going to have international spectators, so they'll they'll lose a billion dollars US. They always go over budget. They say that on average, I think since 1960, they've blown out by, you know, around uh, 172%. So they usually do blow out. They do usually go over budget but Tokyo's got its problems in that it's got these covid issues and they won't get the international tourists they'll get the broadcast rights but they won't get the international tourists which is the and the local spend and that's the um, that's the thing they're battling against
0: in terms of that tourist aspect is that one of the primary drivers for the secondary economic benefits that we really see from holding uh, an olympic games
1: i mean yeah secondary benefits when you you get it basically you get a 2 week tourism promo for your city and your country. Places like Paris and London people go to, we, we, we know that. But for places like Sydney and 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 Rio, um, you know, it is a good opportunity because people will do this, you know, once in a lifetime trip because we're, we're, we're far away from some of those markets. So sometimes for the Olympics, in a way, it's a coming out, out and joining the world. You'd rightly say that Beijing in 2008 could really say this is showing off China's economic rise and, you know, pulling. And Seoul, when Seoul joined in 88, it was South Korea looking towards a democratic future after, you know, years of being a military dictatorship. So in some ways, they do use it as a bit of a coming out parade too. And that can certainly have the eye on the tourist dollar.
2: The TV money doesn't go to Tokyo, it goes to the IOC, Right. Exactly. And then the IOC dispenses um, the TV money uh, in what's called solidarity payments to various national organisa- Olympic organizations, plus some extra for the host. So the major beneficiary of this made for TV Olympics, which is what Tokyo will be, will be the International Olympic Committee, not. Tokyo. and um, There's very little evidence that there is any sustained increase in tourism arising from the Olympics. Every Olympics tries to have its own kind of narrative projection of place. So it's London, you know, it's post-imperial Britain. The last time you had the Tokyo Games in 64, it was Japan is back in the community of nations. The question then is, to what extent can it control Uh, the image it's trying to project. I would suggest with Tokyo, the ultimate image that will be projected is that this is a nation state that has been bullied by a supranational body, the International Olympic Committee, into holding a Games or cornered, as one distinguished Japanese athlete said, cornered into holding the Games because of the nature of the contract that the host city signs with the IOC because most of the costs will end up with Tokyo and the Japanese national government.
0: What you're saying is that Tokyo is going to and, and Japan are going to bear this enormous economic burden from these games. What's the role of the IOC? Are they going to, at the end of this, walk away and wash their hands? Because I think I read somewhere that the reason Tokyo twenty twenty is going ahead is because Japan can't afford to terminate the contract.
1: If they cancel it it would cost them 4.5 trillion yen, I think. Having no spectators would cost them about, about, about a, th- a third of that. So that's that's a pretty big hit. Some Japanese economists said they'd wipe out all the games uh, this year in the, in the Japanese economy, which is a pretty big call. Japan in 2021 is quite different than the Japan of the 60s and the Olympics is quite a different role. I think Japan would be pursuing the Olympics in 1964 to show their modern economy Nowadays, as David says, you know, it's, they're sort of lumbered with it. It's quite a, quite, a, quite, a, quite a different mindset in Japan.
2: The host city is not empowered to cancel the games. Only the IOC may do so. So one of the problems for the hosts is that if they did cancel the games, they would leave themselves open to being sued By the IOC, that would be a good look, wouldn't it? Suing a host city that's in a state of emergency for cancelling the games. The contract is heavily weighted in favour of the IOC. Now, I think that will have to change at various points, especially because because of the decline in the number of people who actually want to host the games. Fortunately, they had 2024 and 28 locked up in one go with LA and Paris. That was a response to the fact that there there was a declining number of potential host cities. And thank you, um, Brisbane. They've sorted out 2032.
0: What happens to the local populations in cities that suddenly are taking on huge amounts of infrastructure for two weeks of sporting events?
1: In the case of Sydney 2000, of course, we got our infrastructure done ahead of time. A lot of it, as David uh, indicated in his opening remarks, was infrastructure Projects that were, were needed anyway just happened to fit the uh, the timetable for the 2000 Olympics. So those stories have been quite good. But then you had, you know, the difficulty that Rio had and Brazil had in particular with the World Cup. I, I read, and uh, David might know this, I read that there was a fella in Tokyo who'd been chucked out of his house for the 64 Olympics, you know, to build the stadium and so on, uh, and he found a new house and he's been chucked out again. So he's been chucked out oh. twice. <laughs> That was quite a, quite a celebrated uh, uh, occasion. You do get these cases of some impact. On on the other hand, you know a lot of the people behind uh, Sydney and London were trying to really think about the legacy in terms of a lot of the uh, public housing and uh, the infrastructure that would be left in the areas. So there's been a lot of forward thinking in terms of what's the legacy after the carnivals over, and how can we use it to improve the the social capital of the city.
2: Every um, Olympics now has to foreground the L word, word, the legacy word. The consequences of hosting a Games for the local population really depends on who you are, uh, you know, where you live, and also what your economic circumstances are. So around Sydney, also London, there were a whole series of questions about people being moved out of public housing areas or you know, or homeless people finding themselves not exactly purged, but um, urged to to move on. The so-called white elephant factor, you know, the, which everybody talks about legacy. Take the South African World Cup, 2010 FIFA World Cup. Uh, I once spoke to a, a distinguished South African economist who said that for several of the new venues, the most economically rational thing to do would be to knock them down after the World Cup. Brand new stadium because of the cost of running, maintaining them after the World Cup, you know, would be well beyond the actual cost of of keeping them going. Finally, I'd say if your program um, could afford it, Toby, perhaps you could fly us over post-pandemic to Athens and we could do a tour together <laughs> of run down to the decrepit uh olympic venues
1: mind you when you when you do it right it's a it's a different story and you know it, what I find interesting about the Sydney Olympics is that I was at AusTrade at the time and we ran these business club Australias where we basically got local exporters and local small businesses in to meet international representatives and you know we had an architect who uh, we sat him next to the uh, the head of the, the Beijing committee for Kathy Freeman's run, and he picked up the project to do the Water Cube, that uh, beautiful swimming pool in in Beijing. So you put people together because it's a great opportunity over over the over the Olympics. Then you're probably going to pick up this economics of schmooze factor that you don't normally get.
2: Uh, I would also mention the Bird's Nest. Uh, yes, that's the, a good one. Bird's Nest, which began to rust. Um, within weeks of the games being held. and um, I don't think I, I think it now might have an anchor tenant, but went for many years without an anchor tenant. so so one another of the spectacular venues in Beijing 2008, uh, 2008 and I've been I've been to both, and the, you know I mean both the both. cube's
1: very, great, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Very impressive. The cube, yes, and the cube is a multi-function space and yes. so on, and
1: yeah, dissolved. Yeah.
2: How how well it, it, it works, but uh, as you say, it has to be done done carefully and uh, and properly and uh, and and have that le- that legacy um, aspect.
0: The Olympics are historically almost always a net loss. If we move to the 2032 prospective bid that's going to be voted on probably within the end of the month where it looks like Brisbane are the only candidate by the IOC that is a preferred bid and there's every chance that they will host it. John Coates, who's the head of the IOC and a, a big Australian figure in IOC circles, has said that how good the Brisbane Olympics bid is, is in part that it'll run at about even in terms of economic impact. If we're touting that the best we can hope for is, oh, you'll break even, why do cities want to host this event? What's the appeal of hosting the Olympics?
1: Well, it's the, it's the brand, getting your, your city and your country on the map, getting the additional trade and investment benefits and all the psychological benefits you get with country branding. LA famously used a lot of corporate sponsorship, which was usually frowned upon. Uh, And that was a legacy of Montreal trying to do it all on the public purse. So I think to some degree, the public-private sector partnership was used reasonably effectively in LA. And, you know, Australia's had a good record of putting these things on from... Melbourne to Sydney with the Olympics to the Commonwealth Games that we've held quite a lot. We've we've got a pretty good track record and in some ways the types of things that Australia does well in terms of our institutions, a lot of our, you know, economics of major events is, is is actually been quite good. So he's probably got good reason to be reasonably optimistic. And for Brisbane, you know, it's been the, you know, third or fourth tier city. So for them to get, you know, global recognition I'd imagine that would be, you know, more beneficial to Brisbane than, say, Sydney doing it again.
2: In my view, there is not a snowball's chance in hell that uh, there will be no public contribution. You know, as Coates has suggested, that the games are going to break even. Uh, I mean, there's a suggestion that it's... You know that the feds are going to come in with half the money and the and and the
0: um- just for the record, the, yeah. the statement from John Coates was yeah. that the operational costs were the IOC ha- would have a budget of 4.5 billion Australian dollars, the IOC would put in 2.5 billion of that, national sponsorship would be a billion of that, and then a billion would come in from ticketing. And so you're saying that tell me is dreaming, basically? I,
2: I would say so. Based on historical precedent, I mean, it would be astonishing uh, if, if it did make money or even broke even, In my, you know, historically. I think that, that, that is the evidence. One of Tim's um, uh, colleagues in the field of economics and accountancy once walked me through a little uh, tutorial on how one can play fast and loose with the economics of a mega event. So there are so many things to look at, costs, you know, that have not been ascribed to the Olympics, but which are really Olympic costs. Income foregone, you know, where investment might have been more, more productive and so on. So, I mean, there are a whole, you know, series of questions there. There is also the side I think Tim got onto, which is Australia has a sport diplomacy policy, which has been recently updated. But a big part of that policy which is supposed to be about diplomacy, nations getting together, and you know all that kind of soft diplomacy of sport. But a big part of that strategy is actually Australia exporting its sporting expertise to other nations. Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, especially yeah. in the in it's the skills Asian Pacific region. So it's actually an export function as well as a, a diplomatic one.
1: Exactly. It's a good, it's a good uh, example of ec- economic and sport diplomacy working together. The skills that we built up putting on Sydney Olympics, the Sydney Olympics were done so well that most of those people ended up running Olympics in London and Rio and China and, and, and so on. So in some ways it's built as Australia's stock of human capital in managing mega events. And uh, like David, I've been to, I think, you know, most of the World Cups and Olympics since 2000 and you hear Aussie accents in every uh, every you know every every headquarters you visit uh, as a result of that uh, those skills
0: how does the cost element play in when you also factor in that the audience for this sort of stuff in in a way that is less tangible than TV licensing deals sports clips from mega events circulate on social media the fact that well only yesterday morning we had people out on Ligon Street, celebrating Euro. We see this reach in terms of sport feels like it permeates across culture in a really international sense now that might not have been the same even back in Sydney 2000. How does holding an event that costs so much money to put on factor in when you think about that audience?
2: The regional model has been has been discussed um, in terms of maker events in order to kind of you know spread the risk a bit or spread the appeal. I mean, it's been take Brisbane, two thousand and thirty two bid. It's been suggested that um, it'll be mostly held around you know the Sunshine Coast, the Gold Coast, Brisbane, and maybe to uh, the Darling Downs bit. Uh, but that that geographical spread is about the size of. Of Greater Los Angeles, so you know there's a suggestion that you know if you're in a megacity, it's it's kind of regional anyway for the Olympics. I, I think we've also um, I don't know if anyone's watched the um, the Euros.
1: Also, oh yeah, Do, too much.
2: I'm still in mourning here as a as a card carrying Brit. I mean, we've been talking about about Tokyo. I think if you th- look at the Euro model, you know, in 11 different countries, uh, the Euros were held. Mm. And uh, in the middle of a pandemic, but also in a continent where, um, where p- more people have been vaccinated. So, um, so you, I mean, the, the, this is another model for holding a, a mega event, which is actually, because as you rightly pointed out, because most people will access it anyway on television, because the television sport nexus is, you know, is very well established now and I don't think you can separate them. I call it the media-sports cultural complex. It's, you know, the, the institutions have completely converged. But you could imagine uh, an Olympic Games, which doesn't have a host city, Per se, or even a host region, but could be held across nations in the way that the um, Euros the have been. You saw a mega sports event, multi-country as well as multi-city, in a pandemic, and um and with with an admission that it will likely increase the spread of the virus, but it, that's not such a big problem because. Um, because people have been va- largely vaccinated.
1: Interesting, wasn't it? With with regional events, you know, a lot of the. Um, you remember the Rugby World Cup in Australia? They played it all round Australia. They played it. They played one game in Launceston in Tasmania, and of course, Tassie is a Aussie Rules place. Mm. And no one know it was Namibia versus Romania. Mm. And so they said, if you live on the odd side of the street, odd numbers, you you back from Namibia. And the other side, you're bragging for Romanias yes, because no one knew who to brag for. So they all got into it and put their colours up. So the, the regional, you know, and they're gonna they're gonna spread the women's World Cup around for football for soccer yeah. around the regions as well. There's a lot. There's a lot to be a, a lot to be said for that in terms of uh, not just having the big cities, you know, gobble up all the uh, all, all the tourism. It, it's interesting, isn't it? To, to your original point, Toby, is that the you know, the sports diplomacy, as, as David was describing it, it's not just mega events. It's sort of constant, in a sense, using using sport as a way to make people a little bit more relaxed when they're not talking about trade and investment and foreign policy and security type issues. And, you know, Australia's always had very strong links with New Zealand and the UK on rugby and, and cricket and very well-established events, but... You know, we've been looking for other ways to connect with japan you know uh and with south korea you know where you've got we both we're both around around the same level in in, in soccer for instance uh or looking at uh, other types of sports where we can we can connect with another country uh, beyond the you know the traditional cricket and, uh, and and rugby union that we're in tennis and so on that we're very we're very good at it
0: Sydney 2000 you know we all have insane memories of it myself being of the age where i would have been 6 at the time that it occurred it it permeates people of of my generation's experience of Sydney and of of being an australian as a sign of how bad lockdowns already gotten me and my housemate put on the opening and closing ceremony the other day there's a lot more- <laughs> fantastic you think it's yes. a bit more camp than it it's very camp but it's very there's a lot of dryzer bone in it you know yeah Which, there
1: is Man p- from p- River.
0: how do you think sydney 2000 changed uh maybe australia is too big of a remit to ask you to think about but how do you think it changed maybe your perception of if not sydney then of australia
2: p- piece of shameless um advertising um I did actually write a piece um, on this very topic in the conversation at the in the anniversary last year called "The Sydney Olympics: How Did the Best Games Ever Change Australia?" <laughs> and uh, I called it an ambivalent legacy. And uh, the headings that I used were a, a global Australia, Indigenous Australia, Sporting Australia, and uh, I end up with the idea of the lucky games. You know, an important part of the legacy of Sydney two thousand. Um, and I think we're start, you know, we've started to see it, especially this year, not only for, for that reason, but in, in recent times, was uh, Indigenous Australia, the prominence of Indigenous Australia. I mean, what struck me looking back at Sydney uh, 2000 was the very powerful role of Indigenous people and of Indigenous iconography. Uh, you know, from from the Kathy Freeman moment, moment which I've written about, Kathy Freeman lighting the cauldron, holding the torch, the opening ceremony, very powerfully indigenous theming, the closing ceremony, uh, the cultural Olympiad with its Festival of the Dreaming. I mean, that for me was was really important. I mean, the, around the time of the Walker. Um, the walk. I do think that that for me is something that really comes through. It's taking a long time, as these things do, the so-called long revolution. But I do think that uh, for me that that is something that still uh, I think resonates. That it was uh, a a remarkable opportunity for Indigenous Australia um, to assert its demands and its presence and its uh, in. in it's endurance. that That's what I most, I think, hold in terms of
0: legacy.
1: Tim, how about you? Well, I've got I to confess, Toby, I actually took a job in Sydney as Chief Economist of Austrade in 99, so I could be in Sydney during the Olympics. And um, um, I wrote a piece very early in 99, The Economics of the Sydney Olympics, uh, you know, on the topic we're talking about today. And for some reason, it got picked up in the press like wildfire. So... I ended up doing all this media all over the uh, all over the Sydney Olympics, and uh, my I think my article was released uh, the day after Cathy Freeman won the won her gold medal. So it was a slow news day, and so it's got picked up everywhere. So I think I've been invited to every Olympics and every World Cup and every Commonwealth Games and everything ever since. So I think it's fantastic <laughs> from, a, from a personal perspective. But also, um, yeah, look, I'd agree with David on this. I mean. Well, no country's perfect, but Australia's done a lot of things really, really well. And um, when you look at the book, Why Australia Prospered by Ian McLean, and you look at Why Nations Fail by the MIT and Harvard Economists, when you look at institutions, Australia's actually played it very well. And to me, uh, the optimism and the capacity to adjust society and to be very positive about society came through i thought in the in the opening and closing ceremonies but throughout 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 the games and um i haven't felt that good uh with kathy freeman winning until ashley Bar- ash barty won in wimbledon on the, on the weekend i just felt particularly the pandemic her win because she's such a gracious humble together person and a, and a great fighter um i, I actually think that, that was a that was a great moment, and the goodwill towards Australians of all backgrounds, whether you've been here for five years or fifty thousand years, uh, everyone you know f- felt the same. So I actually thought the Olympics did in- encapsulate to me the sort of optimistic, sunny Australian spirit, and I, I found it was a win for people that recognise that Australia's not perfect, but as far as nations in the world, you know, we're we're clearly one that's got it close to right we're always willing to change and uh, think about ways we can further improve you know the economic and and social well-being of 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 our citizens and give everyone as many life chances as, as possible
0: that's all for today's panel thank you to my guests david rowe and tim harcourt You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Thanks for listening.